it's easy to follow a program that's that's proven to be successful and get great results. Um, but to, to, to try to do something different, to be better than just have great results, have incredible results, and that's what they're, they're doing. And this is what Zatopek did. He chose a journey that no one had been on before. This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. In today's episode, discussing the epic victory drive that age groupers get after a special race, Jack Rayner beats the 10-kilometer Australian record, which has been standing for a long time now, and part two of the Emil Zatopek story, the man who changed running and the man that revolutionized interval training. So much to discuss in today's episode. We can't wait to tell you part two of the Emil Zatopek story. Dad, welcome to the episode. Let's start with a normal segment. What are you grateful for? Thanks, Jordan. I'm looking forward to uh, talking about the famous Zatopek again. Um, it was a bit of fun last last week and uh, I can't believe we have to do this over two episodes. It's, uh, it shows the stature of the man. Um so my gratitude this week is a very simple one. It happens to be uh, a long weekend coming up. Uh, we have a holiday down here in Melbourne for a horse race, which is pretty weird. Um, and there's a public holiday. So it ends up being most people take Monday off. The horse race is on Tuesday, so people have a four-day weekend. Some people take Friday as well. So it ends up being a huge break in in your normal routine for it's great. It's like an Easter Easter holiday. Um, and it's always an opportunity to do something and get away. And this particular weekend, we're going away with a small group of uh, fellow cyclists uh, to do a little bit of a training camp up in famous Bright, um, which is the the hills um, area of Victoria, which has got, you know, three fantastic climbs, um, Buffalo, Hotham, and Falls Creek. Um, and we'll spend our time um, getting some strength in there up for the upcoming, for a lot of the guys, it's for the upcoming Tour of Bright, which is a famous race in, in uh, Victoria, which is a three-stage race. So, yeah, my gratitude is that we, we get the opportunity to get away um, and, yeah, get to spend some time um, with people who are thinking the same and really wanting to improve their cycling and get stronger and um, I just love these these weekends when you can plan it, and um, the only thing that's could be a, a factor is that uh, the El Nino is having and playing havoc with uh, <laughs> with the roads and the amount of water that's landed in Australia in the last two months. So I know some of the roads are cut already. The road to Falls might be preventing us to ride up there. But yeah, um, besides that, it should be. Uh, yeah, I'm very grateful for that opportunity. It's a classic cyclist gratitude where you can't wait to spend six hours a day in the saddle riding up some big mountains. It's just, it still makes me laugh. And that's, it's funny. I was uh, going up, uh, up the mountain with a bunch of mates um, to go on a snow trip and it was a mountain in New Zealand and I hadn't been there for a long time. And going up on the bus, you catch the bus up and it's this epic drive where you get the most spectacular views and three quarters way up. I was just looking down and it has heaps of hairpin turns. It was like a New Zealand uh, Alp It's the um, Remarkables, if anyone knows it, in Queenstown. And I just muttered to myself, gee, I'd love to ride this. And it was just a very passing comment. I didn't think much of it. I was just looking out and two of my mates just looked at me like I was bat 
crazy. <laughs> they go, what the hell did you just say? And I thought, oh, it's so funny. It's so, so, such a natural thing for a cyclist to want to do. But to everyone else, they're going, did you just say you'd want to write up this, you, you weirdo? It's just, yeah, it's very funny. And my gratitude is somewhat in line with that. I am just grateful for running. Um, I just really enjoy running. And every time I'm on a run and I get into it and you get into the groove and you, you get through that warm-up phase and you get into the flow state um, where you're running comfortably, your heart rate's not too high. It's just one of the best feelings in the world, I reckon. So that is my gratitude. And I I can totally uh, concur with that. And if it, it if I was able to run, I would love to put that back into my uh, fitness. And unfortunately, I've damaged my body so much that I can't run anymore, which is very frustrating. And it is one of my passions that I'd love to do. Um, I'm spending a lot of my time walking, but you're right. Running is such a buzz and you get such a good uh, endorphin release from just the satisfaction of cruising around and you're providing the uh, the propulsion, not not a bike or or swimming through water you're actually running yourself and yeah it's a great gratitude moving on to the next segment what has caught your attention and i mentioned the special words the victory drive now that is not something that everyone will be familiar with but it is uh it is something that we're very fond of at Travella. so explain uh, the victory drive to the listeners yeah look the victory drive is um it's a bit of a weird one really um and i i'm kind of a little bit embarrassed about it but it is one of those things, special moments you share with yourself um, and that in itself is pretty weird but I, I think it's worth telling because, um, you know, we are we are generally a weird group of people who love uh, putting ourselves under under pressure and, uh, and love to test ourselves. That's kind of the journey we're all on, you know, um, seeing how much we can improve ourselves and uh, seeing what we can get out of ourselves, setting goals and and the, the victory drive is about that. It's about um, setting goals and and having small steps along the journey and then uh, reaching for that goal and succeeding. And whether it ends up in actually victory as in winning the event or whether it's just you performing at your very best that you've ever done. And, and that may end up you being 60th instead of 120th in a in, a, in an event. Um, it's still the victory, the victory drive. You're actually, you've moved up. Um, I want to specifically talk about one of the guys that um, I've had the pleasure of coaching. Um, I don't normally mention names on the podcast, but uh, this guy's a lovely, lovely guy, cyclist for, from WA, Western Australia. And um, when he first joined Trivello, um, he was a pretty accomplished rider, but he'd never won um, a state title uh, or a national title um, or any title for that matter and had not won a lot of races and um, was very competitive and always thereabouts. But um, he said to me when we started, you know, I just want to win that state road race. That would be a real goal for me. Um, and I said, oh, you know, that's a great that's a great uh, goal to aspire to and um, cycling such a difficult one to pin your goal setting on to a result because there's so many factors that happen in a bike race you know it's just not about fitness and we've said many times it's not only the the fittest person who will win a bike race because there's so many tactics involved in uh in bike racing you could be by far the strongest rider and never win um because your tactics are horrible um so you need both you need really good tactics experience uh when to make your moves uh, how much to ride, when to ride hard, when to burn a match, and you need to be fit to to accommodate all those things you want to do in a race. And so, yeah, Dave rang me the other day and uh, sent, first of all, he sent me a, 
picture on the text with a photo of him on the top step. Um, that meant, in my mind, he was just won the state road title, and and the emotion I felt straight away was far out. That's that's pretty impressive um, because I know how hard it is to win that. Um, uh, and and soon soon enough we got to talk and he was um, in the car on the way home, which is the best time to talk, whether you've won or lost. It doesn't matter. It's a really good time to go over the analysis of the race. And, um, and it's funny because he said to me, I got in the car and just yelled. I just yelled out, you know, fuck yeah, you know, by myself, no one around. You need to be humble when you're on the dice. You need to be keeping quiet, you know, inside you're bursting because of what you've achieved. Um, and it's, you know, it's a big thing to be state champion in, in road racing for your for your particular state. So so when you get by yourself, you just kind of have this big release. And, um, and that's something that I've ex- experienced myself. And I happened to say that to Dave um, that I said to him, when you got in the car, Dave, I didn't know about this. I got, I asked him, when you got in the car to drive home, tell me, explain your feelings. And he said, I just yelled out. And, and I said, that's just truly amazing because that is the victory drive home. That is what makes it special that you've, you've really done what you wanted to do. And, and you appreciate everything that went into it, um, the preparation, the, the the training regime that you put yourself under to to work towards this goal. Um, you know, the years of years of improving your fitness and and then talking tactics that we've done over the two years about when to when to attack, when not to attack, what to do when you attack. All those things worked out perfectly, and he rode the best tactical race that he's ever ridden and. And that victory drive home is is the special one that you know you just want to share it with yourself. And if you can share it with someone who knows what what you've gone through, it's even more sweeter. And and yeah, I must say it was you know a very emotional um, conversation we were having, and um, and it's one that you know is is really special. And and I think it's worth noting. And and that you know on the topic of what's caught my attention, you know. I was kind of buzzing and I don't want to sound like it's just I get excited about victories. I get excited about PBs. I get excited about people achieving. Um, and I, I would have the same emotion, you know, whether you, you ran a two-minute 10K and it happened to, to put you 20th place, um, uh, PB. Uh, and and that's that's what I'm talking about is, you know, setting yourself goals, uh, going about it, so di- diligently and not leaving any stone unturned and, and it's just a special feeling that uh, it's taken him two years to get to this point um, and oh, he's been a model a model athlete to coach it's you know what do I need to do and listening the whole time and you know it's it's a partnership we've developed uh, where you know I'm listening to how he's feeling he's got a high powered job he's a surgeon um, and so you know it, cycling's a release for him and it's fun and that's the way he's he's taken on this journey and and he wants to train properly he doesn't want to waste any training sessions he wants to know what session he's doing and what's going to benefit uh, the benefit he's going to get out of it um, because he's got a very busy busy schedule like we all do um, so yeah it's it's the victory drive home it's something that um, I'm sure people once once they've heard this story will start thinking about that when they leave their their 
fun run or when they leave their triathlon and it's just something that you do yourself and and if you can share it with someone special it's even better with your wife or your partner or your best mate or whatever it's it's or an awesome coach, yeah. an awesome thing to experience I absolutely agree and there's I've had many victory drives homes where it was just a PB you know I've where I've done a massive PB and I would have come 25th in the race you know but that was uh, I was just as ecstatic on that drive home you're doing the same thing yelling to yourself I've I've done that victory drive home you know giving yourself a huge cheer off a 5k park run PB you know it's it's when you train hard and you're working towards something and then you you get a good result you just get that emotional release and like you said, it's along the journey. There's these little stepping stones that um, we test ourselves against, and when you get a reward for it, it's so it's such a nice feeling, such a good feeling. But especially when it's one of your A goals, you know, a really big result you're looking for, when you get an A race you're working towards, that's when you get that huge just rush, and and that is a bit of an end result that you're working towards, even though we say it's about the journey. Um, but that that part is so worth it, and then you reset and go again. So yeah, that's a great one. What's caught my attention is Jack Rayner, Australian superstar runner, just broke the long-standing 10-kilometer national record, the Australian national record, in a time of 27.43, blistering pace. He broke Craig Mottram's record, and I think this is a really good indicator. We've been saying this for a while, and everyone is really seeing that Australian middle-distance running is absolutely stepping up. You know, Ollie Hall winning our first 1,500-meter gold at the Commonwealth Games recently, um, Craig Mottram was our best middle distance runner to come through for a while and a lot of his records have been held until now and they're all start- a lot of them are starting to be broken or started to be tested. Um, uh, his mile record was was broken by Ollie Hoare as well recently. Um, you know, he, he had all these records for the last 10, 15, up to 20 years um, and now they're really being tested and I think that's really great to see. Um because he was one of our most competitive runners on the world stage. And a lot of the runners now uh, are getting to that stage. We see Stuart McSwain at the very top competing against the world's best consistently in the Diamond League. Um, but one of the key things that stood out for me was, and this is one of your theories, Dad, that you're really, really strong on. And that is Jack Rayner has spent the last few years as a marathon runner. He's been training for the marathon. He went to the Tokyo Olympics for the marathon. And it's only in the last 12 months or less he decided to step down and have a crack at a few 10-kilometer races. I think his first 10-kilometer race was Zatapec last year. I think that's correct. Um, and he found he was really good. And after all these years of marathon training, when he steps down, he's got that strength. And I don't know the intricacies of his training once he decided to do some 10K races, how much speed work he did. But I think the, what, what we want to say behind your theory is that this longer endurance running can give you so much strength that you can perform at shorter distances just from that base, just from that strength that you get from that endurance. And look at him. He's now the fastest 10-kilometer runner in Australia, even though this isn't his event. And I just find that fascinating. Yeah, and it's a great point you make. But there's so much that we don't know about his training. So we're kind of really um, just guessing. But we do know that he did do a lot of marathons. So his preparation would have to be you know, very much structured towards endurance type training. And we're presuming that, you know, he's got that strength for the last 2K in a 10K race from his marathon base. Um, And that's the point we're making is, you know, um, getting stronger over longer um, 
uh, training will help you on shorter stuff. Um, of course, you need to do specific training sessions that's going to contribute to that, such as some faster running or some goal pace running or some intervals or some hill repeats where you are running, you know, somewhere around that sub threshold threshold to VO two period. So, so those those training sessions are really important, but but don't. Um, discount the value of the the big volume that you've got in your fitness bank that we talk about all the time um, that can actually help you contribute to um, running a you know an Australian record the fastest ever Australian um, that's been held for a long long time and ironically um, we look we're talking about Zadapec today and if you look at his time back in 1952 for the 10k when he won the gold medal at the Olympics and it was a world record at the time, wasn't that much slower. And he was running on a pretty crappy surface, um, cinders surface with dodgy shoes to, to be even, you know, more handicapped. And, and it shows you the caliber of, um, of Zadapec. And look, we've got guys who've got all the best facilities, um, best running shoes, you know, carbon sole shoes. You should be able to run faster on tracks that have got you the best rebound. I don't know how much difference that makes, but, but you know, Jack Rayner's result is fantastic. But put it in perspective, guys running onto dirt, um, they're not that far behind. And it was literally 1952, which is, you know, 70 years ago, and there's only a minute or so between his time then and now. Oh, that staggers me when I see that. I absolutely agree. And and this was the fastest time ever ran on Australian soil by Jack Rayner. So, um, yeah, the comparisons are very interesting and um, great to see from Jack Rayner, but you're spot on. It is, it is the uh, wonderful thing about the Emil Zatopek story and um, – and that whole era of what he was able to achieve. And let's get into it. Let's get into part two because we really want to discuss uh, where he went. In part one, we spoke about a lot of his training, a lot of his background and the results uh, it gave him. And 1948 was his first Olympics where he was able to show the world really what he was made of in a championship race. And um, I would akin, when I was thinking about everything we spoke about in part one and and his uh, innovation of training methods and the innovation was so big that it changed the way training was done for the next 70 years, even up until now. Some of these principles are still sound. And I think we're in an era right now where the same thing is happening with the Norwegian method, you know, and the, the Norwegians kind of shirk it a little bit. They joke about the Norwegian method in quotation marks and the Norwegian train, but they also do know that they're ahead of the game and they're revolutionizing it. And what they're doing now and the kind of results they're producing, I think will shape training and where training goes for the next foreseeable future um, and that's what he did didn't he Zatopek that's in, in that period it was a really formative period that that shaped um, running to what it is today he's a bit of a trailblazer and um, as I think we brief, briefly touched on last week he wasn't to know whether it was going to be successful or not and and that's a huge risk if you if you let's you know Ingebrigtsen has proved and that whole family Ingebrigtsen's and now the triathletes with um Gustav and um, and uh, Christian, um, you know, they've both put down a new way of training. You know, one's in running and one's in triathlon, or two are in triathlon. Oh, there's more than two. There's there's plenty more actually, but but you know, th- they've gone on a journey where it's unknown the outcome. And that's the bit that really intrigues me is it's easier to follow a program that's that's proven to be successful and get great results, um, but to, to, 
to try to do something different, to be better than just have great results, have incredible results, and that's what they're they're doing. And this is what Zadapek did. He chose a journey that no one had been on before. And did he know that that was going to be successful? He had no idea. He just thought that I need to do it differently if I want to be competitive. And and that's the bit that intrigues me is, and we relate it to our own journeys, each individual listening now is, you know, be willing to change and don't accept the fact that what you did for five years or 10 years, I'll just keep doing that because you're going to stay the same and you need to up, up the ante whether you change something about the structure or the frequency or the duration or the intensity. You just need to do things differently to, to give yourself a different stimulus, a different overload, a different progression. And this is the thing that I love about guys like this who are innovators in their time. And I just think it's a little bit ignored about the things that he did. Um, and I suppose history, that's why we're talking about this because history, will I think we'll see the, the 2018 to 2022 so far Things have changed from from what they were in two thousand and four or nineteen eighty three, or you know, I think people have really gone. Well, yeah, this has worked for fifty years. Let's just let's just tweak it a little bit and see what we results we get. And there's a lot of similarities from what I see what the Norwegians are doing and what Zadapek did. Um, and he did a, he did a lot of volume, true, and that's kind of the Norwegian theory is to, to really be strong aerobically. Um, a lot of that zone two, aerobic fitness, strength, um, altitude. Um, you know, I'm not sure Zadapek did any altitude, but he did a lot of strength where he ran in he ran in uh, army boots and um, on really hard terrain through forests and, and trails and, you know, with running in boots and, and really tried to, you know, when he got onto a track, he was he was doing, as we said, you know, I don't know, 2200s plus 4400s plus, plus 10200s, you know, ridiculous sessions that that are just going to make him stronger or, you know, it's be stronger or die, isn't it? It'll either, it'll sort you out, won't it? If You know, we don't know how he built up to that, you know, they're renowned sessions that we've seen, but he, he might have done, you know, five by two and 10 by four and five by two and progressed his way over four years to get to those ultimate sessions that people rave about. So there's a lot of unknown things that we that we don't know about, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that his, his bank of fitness was enabling him to be a 5'10 and a marathon runner in the one year, which has never been done before. You know, he won he won the medal in all those events, the gold medal, and um, you know, no one's ever done it since. But but what what a, a versatile runner to be able to to be able to do that um, in three different events. Let's go through it. So you we've established his training, we've established the fact that he was getting himself big on the world stage and he goes to the London Olympics in 1948 and has a crack at the 5 and 10K double and wants to show how good he is. And he he wins gold in the 10,000 metres, which becomes uh, his famous pet event. And it's actually incredible from the period of 1948, which is the Olympic year, to 1954. He won a record-breaking 38 10-kilometre races going undefeated and really cemented himself as the 10,000-metre king. And a well-deserved gold medal at the Olympics and shows that he's the best 10,000-meter runner in the world. 
he fell short in the 5,000. And I say fell short, he still won a silver. So, uh, silver in the 5,000 meters, gold in the 10,000 meters. But it was that silver medal that absolutely burned within him because he wanted the double. He wanted the double gold and he believed he was good enough. Um, and so, he spends the next four years uh, determined to do um, one thing and one thing only. And that's repeat his gold in the 10K and do, go one better in the 5K and win that elusive gold medal. And all his training was based around making sure that he was strong enough to win both races. And uh, he actually is, in his training, he really made sure that he practiced that speed work, but practiced, he really practiced his kick. And when he was doing these sessions of, of 5, 10 by 200, 40 by 400, finished with the 200 speed work, he was practicing that last kick at the end of these training sessions. He was going as fast as he could in that final lap. And uh, we come to 1952, the Olympics in Helsinki. And... We get to the 5,000-meter race and he was up against a very strong field of runners and some who had faster times than him in the 5,000 meters. Uh, and as we said, at the previous Olympics, uh, in his biography, it says he'd blown the 5,000 meters, which is quite an aggressive word. I don't think he, he absolutely blew it, but he thought he could win it and he got silver. Um, there, there was talk that he misjudged uh, the, the race at the end, um, but if you do watch the footage, it just looks like he's, he's not strong enough. Uh, anyway, he really, really wanted to win this one. And he had this plan, which he'd been working on for the previous four years. And he's quoted by saying, by the time he got to the 1952 Olympics, he he reckons he's done about 40,000 fast 400-meter laps. And his whole plan was to blow them away in that last lap with a 400-meter sprint at the end. And uh, it's quite a remarkable race how it unfolded. And there was a few of them there still uh, still at the end. I think it was four of them uh, coming to the last few laps. And the plan he'd been dreaming of for the last four years kicks into actions. He goes into the lead in the last lap for about 100 meters. And the next thing you know, he gets passed. And a second runner passes him and another runner passes him. And he's sitting in fourth and he's coming down the back straight. And his plan that he's been working on for four years is in ruins. And the other three are getting away from him. And what does the Mills Zatapec do? You know, any normal person would really panic down this last straight. Uh, you know, everything he's been training for is going out the window. But instead of despairing, he remains cool. Uh, he thinks that they've panicked and they've gone too soon and he still thinks they can beat them. And in classic Zatapec fashion, there's no way his head is going to give up. He claws his way back and on the final bend, it's just pure willpower that wills him to the front. And he actually said, I could see the medal. He could see the gold medal. He looks like, in quotes, a deranged insect. And he was famous for having an absolutely shocking style. They, uh, As we said in the last episode, he, he looked like a baby giraffe sometimes running. And he never cared how he looked. He just said, I just care how fast I can go. And somehow he blows the others away and wins by a decent distance and gets his gold medal in the 5,000 meters. And what a comeback story for him to go through all that and win that 5,000 meter race. Yeah, what a great uh, uh, story you've told and it's so accurate. Um, and watching the video of that uh, event, uh, I just thought he, he was done for all money. Um, and, you know, the training method that he, he had worked on, um, it, it paid dividends because he just forced himself back around them. Like he'd already just been passed. And then guys who go around people in the back straight, the people you're going past, that's it for them. They're normally done nine times out of 10. And next thing you know, he, he gets the 200 to go and, and just starts going around them again. He wins by 10 meters um, in the end. And that practice of that finish, that, that last 300 meters that he so diligently thought about for four years, you know, that's something to get in the car and go hell year about, have the victory drive home. Um, and, you know, 
just a small example that, that you did when you were so desperately trying to break two minutes for 800. We got you in some of your training sessions when you were doing eight by 200s to run the last 50 meters lifting your pace. So you were getting practiced at lifting your pace. So we determined that you were fading in the last 50 meters and you'd been so close you'd run 2001, 200.0 whatever and and you were just fading every time you did the next race and so so that was implemented into your into your training sessions so that it would be second nature this is the sort of thing he's doing he's he's making sure that he is strong from 300 to go and and amazingly Inga Britson does the same tactic and and when he lost the 1500 meters at the world titles and normally Inga Britson sets a pace that is not possible for anybody to pass him. So if someone comes up on his shoulder, he just accelerates so that no one can come past him. And Whiteman went around him and almost cut Ingebrigtsen off through his stride out and then um, was having to go back around him to win and couldn't do it in the straight. And that was an example of um, someone who practiced something but hadn't got to understand that if something else goes wrong, what am I going to do? Um, so they're examples of, you know, strategy is quite important um, in a lot of the stuff that, you know, from back in the 50s to, to even now, you can still be a great runner but still blow the race if you've, if you've gone too soon or burnt the match too quickly or, or you know, whatever strategy you use it is, doesn't suit your style of running. Yeah, and in in Ingridson's defence, I don't think there was much more he could have done. He just wasn't strong enough to come back around. Wyman Wyman was just too good on the day, I would say. Um, but what blows me away from this five thousand final was that his last lap, Zadapek, was in fifty seven seconds, which is a monster kick at the end of a five thousand meters. And granted, the he won it in I think the time was fourteen oh eight. So like you said before, that that time is still a minute slower than probably what the the gold medal at. The world chance was this year. I think Britson ran 13, low 13s. The world record is now in the 1230s. So it does seem like a long way off. But don't forget the type of track they're running on, the type of equipment they have, the shoes that they're in. For him to run a 50 second, 57 second last lap to me is just astounding because even nowadays, the best runners in the world with the most advanced training methods, with the um, most advanced shoes, their last 500 meter kick might still only be 54, 55, 56. So Zadapek isn't that far off them. And like we said, this is 70 years ago. So to me, that was one of the more astounding things about the time. Um, I don't want to glaze over it, but he, he does the magical double, the COVID double at the Olympics, the, winning the 5,000 meters and 10 meters, which is just an incredible feat for any distance runner and so hard to do at the one event. And so he goes one better than 1948. He wins the double gold. 5,000 meters and 10,000 meters. And then he does something completely surprising in a very last minute decision. And I couldn't verify exactly how last minute it was because, again, the myths like to say that he decided 20 minutes before the race that he was going to do the marathon. <laughs> but more, more accurately, I think it was a couple of days in or a day before that he decided, no, I'm going to have a crack at this marathon. And so he decides to try and go for the triple, the 5,000 meters, 10,000 meters and marathon gold medal which has never been done and then to this day has never ever been repeated and he enters the marathon and in epic fashion he he wins the gold medal which is just absolutely astounding and is the only person in history to win the 5,000 10,000 meters and marathon at the same olympics what an outstanding feat and um, it's a great story about that marathon because jim peters uh, had just set the, a new world record um not that long ago. So he was the out-and-out favourite and 
Um, I think he'd run two hours 20 for the marathon and, and that record had come down from two hours 25. So there was, there was some really good runners um, that were capable of running fast and, and um, yeah, to see, to see the footage of that, it's quite, I, I love watching that old footage and they had some little sections that you could see and uh, Peters just took off out of the stadium in the lead and just left everybody and, and you know Zadipek, who who's you know got speed five thousand meter and ten thousand meter speed was finding the pace too much and he's thinking well I'd, I'd like to keep up with this guy but it's too fast I can't I can't even keep up if I wanted to and you know the story goes that of course Peters went too hard um, and didn't didn't really rate anybody else in the race I don't think um, enough to 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 really just try to run a uh, a championship race rather than I think he wanted to run, you know, the best time trial that he ever run in his life um, and not not think about the other runners. And, and of course, you know, the, the story goes that he uh, he actually, you know, ended up on his back on the ground and Zadipek passed him and, and ended up winning comfortably by two, two and a half minutes and, and eventually um, ran a 2.23, which, you know, was an Olympic uh, record, not the world record, but it was the new Olympic record. So, um, you know, all hails Adepec for for finishing off the treble. It's yeah, it's quite remarkable. Again, it's never been done since then, and he really cemented his place as uh, one of the greatest track runners of all time. And uh, that that cemented his spot in history. And uh, from then on, you know, five five Olympic medals. That's uh, four gold and one silver. Like we said, he went on to win 38 10,000-meter races across that six-year period. He then becomes, in 1954, the first person to ever break 29 minutes for the 10K. So there's a lot of uh, elusive barriers in athletics, and they come up in all sorts of forms. You know, the 2-minute 800 the, uh, for, for the amateur athlete, that is. Uh, for the professionals, the 4-minute mile, um, which was covered for so long and then was finally broken. Um, the, the sub two hour marathon, which Kipchoge has managed to do, albeit not under legal conditions. Um, but yeah, Zadapek was the first person to break 29 minutes for the 10,000 meters. And like you said, you know, Jack Rainer just ran 27.43 um, for Zadapek to go only a minute slower over a full 10K. I mean, a minute is at that pace, it's about, you know, 400 meters or just under. Um, but that's not that far off when, again, the track is a lot slower, the shoes are a lot slower. Um, his his training methods are a lot less scientific. Uh, it's it's incredibly impressive, and so that sort of brings us to the conclusion and the summary of the story. And uh, it became so famous and etched in history that uh, we now in Australia have yearly the Zadapek Track Classic, which is the most prestigious track event in Australia. It's the pet event in the race. It's the ten thousand meters. The whole the calendar of the event obviously has a whole lot of stuff in it. It has some fifteen hundred meter races, three thousand meters. Uh, but the pet events are the men's and women's 10,000 uh, metres. It's actually on in December this year. It's normally in December, but uh, has been moved around the last few years due to COVID. But it'd be great to see which uh, which Aussies turn up this year and who can win the the famous Zatapec. And, you know, we grew up um, as athletic kids going to watch the Zatapec at Olympic Park. Um, and lately the crowds the crowds died off for a little bit there, but the last few years the, the athletics crowds have been building again. Uh, this year's Zatapec, which was at the end of summer um, or middle of summer. Uh, was one of the biggest ass crowds I've seen in a while. Uh, so it's really exciting to see. And um, obviously now that anyone's going there, hopefully if they didn't know already, we'll know a little bit more about um, the history behind the man who the event is named after. And I think that's the point we wanted to finish on was we're really big here um, at Travello about the character of who you are as an athlete 
um, because sports is one thing and when it's time to compete and time to um, be a beast on the field, we absolutely want that. That's what we're all about. You know, it's it's putting everything on the line to achieve the result you want. But uh, in that, we still like to surround ourselves with what you said before in your gratitude uh, with regards to going on training camps and training with like-minded people is you want to surround yourself with people that are nice to be around, um, that lift you up and um, your character is really important. I think that's, you know, a lot of the research I was doing and something that stood out to me and uh, you also know some a lot of anecdotal stories about this, uh, Zatopec was just known to be so selfless and humble. And I want to touch on some points about that. And one of the key story, stories was he actually threatened to boycott the 1952 Olympics because a fellow athlete of his was banned for political reasons. Obviously, the um, you know the war had been going on. Um, they were part of a communist government. One of his fellow athletes had stood up to the communist government and was banned from the Olympics. And then uh, Zatopec came out and said, well, I'm not racing if he's banned. And uh, they... Um, didn't call his bluff. They they submitted, and uh, the athlete got to race, and Zatopek didn't have to boycott. And imagine if you know he the three gold medals he would have had to give up if he did boycott it. But that was the kind of character he was. He was actually willing to sacrifice his own ambitions um, for the good of someone else. And I think that um, that is one story that really sums it up and astounded me. And it's a beauty, isn't it? And look, um, he he goes on to to try to lift up his fellow human beings and even giving – there's stories of him giving advice mid-race, mid not as a, a, a smart aleck, but but as someone who really genuinely cares about someone who looks like they're in trouble. Um, and, you know, he was always smiling, always happy. You know, we always say that people who love doing what they're doing will be good at it. And you could see from all the footage, every time you see him, he's waving to the camera and, the, you know, cameras weren't really prevalent in those days. Um, you know, most of the athletics that was ever being uh, competed, com- completed and, and run was, you know, be, there's no there's no footage of a lot of it, but that's the character that, that people were talking to uh, about him. And, you know, and down the track he ends up uh, – um, trying to to help so many people that uh, you know the communist government of of the of the era ended up um, you know sending him down the mines and and he 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 really disappeared from public life uh, because of some of his outspoken um, um, political opinions statements. yeah 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 statements and opinions that. It got him in hot water, but they were all true and and real and caring for other human beings. But but it ended up uh, being to his detriment, and he, you know he wasn't heard of for for twenty odd years, and 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 all of a sudden um, things changed in the world, and he was kind of released a little bit and uh, came back on the scene, and that's when the Zatopek uh, euphoria of the eighties really took off, when he was back out in the world again, um, you know. Uh, spreading the goodwill almost. Um, so he's an incredible human being and, um, you know, they're the things that, that you don't hear about with just, uh, you know, sports people. Um, he was very political and really pushed pushed his views uh, so much so that it got him in massive trouble. Um, and it was all to do with helping human other humans. That was his his entire mantra was not for himself but for to, to uplift others. And, and I think that's a, a, an you know, an amazing trait to have, and it's not easy to have that when, um, when we are so 
determined to improve our own lives and you know self-centered and and including myself in all of this you know that it's an easy thing to get caught up in um and and not think about your fellow human beings but uh you know this is this is the sort of person that he was and and it, and it's and it's even more exciting to see someone succeed um with yeah. all these traits um i love it it's it's just brilliant Perhaps one of the best stories of all comes from Australia's Ron Clark and he actually visited um, Emil Zatopek in Prague in 1966 after both had finished their um, their fantastic running careers. However, as good as Ron Clark's running career was, which included 17 world records, uh, the coveted Olympic gold medal had eluded him. And uh, when he went and visited Zatopek in Prague, Zatopek offered up his typical hospitality um, they had a great friendship because of it. And at the conclusion of the trip, uh, Zatopek handed Ron Clark a package as he was boarding his flight to leave Cl- Prague. And Clark opened the package midair to find an almost inconceivable gift. It was one of Zatopek's Olympic gold medals. And as Zatopek once said, great is the victory, but the friendship is all the greater. And I just think that as he was renowned for his friendly, hospitable, generous, selfless nature, uh, he was like you said, friendly to other athletes, he spoke six to eight languages and he was really big on trying to learn more languages because he wanted to communicate with more people. That was his goal with learning more language. And we're, again, we're just really big on this. Sport is so much about this battle against yourself, against the clock, um, against your own PBs and against your competitors. Uh, but it's also this great place where people with common interest come together. And I think that, uh, yeah, just his character and his persistence in self-experimentation, his training methods, both conventional and unconventional training methods can still be seen in the world of athletics today. And um, I want to summarize it um, by saying that uh, he provided endless examples of how an athlete and a sportsman should live. Um, And Ron Clark's quote, I think, is a great finish to this story where he says, Zatopek's enthusiasm, his friendliness, his love of life shown through every moment. There is not and never was a greater man than Emil Zatopek. And I think that's as high praise as you can get from a fellow athlete. Yes, um, that's spine-tingling the story of uh, imagine giving away your gold medal uh, to a a fellow athlete who you felt sorry for, who who deserved to win. Ron Clark deserved to win many, many gold medals at the Olympics, but through various circumstances, it just never quite happened. And and as much as people deserve something, it it doesn't always come to fruition. Um, And... And Emil really, he really understood that. And oh wow, what a gift! It's it it brings an emotion to you. Imagine his face opening up that that package and seeing a gold medal. Um, and yeah, I think that's a great way to finish. And and that sums up the the, the human being that he that he was. And unfortunately, he died in early two thousands um, as a, a reasonably young young person, really. Um, but he had a pretty t- torrid life, I think. Um, um, but you know, boy, did he make the most of his opportunities, and and that's why I think this story is is really worth worth sharing, and um, and it's it's a great example of, for many metaphors of life. Uh, if we can if we can look to what he's done um, on his journey as a trailblazer, that you know everybody has an opportunity to do something uh, constructive in their life and contribute to um, to the world being a better place, and, and it's a great start with him. And also the fact that. One of the learnings I take from it is that it's not it's not incredibly hard or difficult to be a nice person. You know, it's not that being a world champion and being an Olympic gold medalist that's pretty difficult to do, and being as mentally tough as him that's pretty difficult to do. You know, but 
being a nice person, being nice to, to athletes around you, being someone that lifts people up and is supportive and looks out for other people. That's all stuff that, that comes at no cost to you and it is really easy. So I think that's really inspiring that um, that's possible for all of us and that's what we want to see more of. Fantastic. I think uh, that's it from, from us on Zatapec. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, the discussion and uh, there's so many positives that uh, hopefully the listeners can get out of it. Um, it is one in, in historic terms, but uh, there's certainly, you know, the whole point of, the, of our, podcast, our podcast is to try to, to help people on their journey. And, and this story, if you can relate it to yourself and think about what things you can do in your journey, um, such as a trailblazer like Zatapec, then you will have a, a much more enjoyable period. That's it for this episode. As always, thanks very much for listening. And we always say that the best thing you can do for us is share the podcast, either uh, share it and give us a review online or share it with a fellow triathlete, cyclist or runner that you know will enjoy it. And if you enjoyed this story, then please pass it on. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.